Welcome to Body of Work, an exploration of health topics in the news and important issues facing science with experts from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Erin Blair, and my guest today is psychiatrist and addiction expert, Dr. Thomas Costin. For the last several years, America has been embroiled in an opioid crisis. Why are opioids so addictive? Why are opioids so addictive is probably uh, a bit of a misunderstanding in the sense that a very large portion of the population gets opioids one time or another in their life for various kinds of pain or surgery that they get. Yet the percentage of people who become dependent and who abuse opioids is actually rather small. It's about 2% of the population or less. So if you look at that sense, you would say they're not very addictive in the least. Uh, however, if you do like them, uh, you like them a lot, and they, uh, they don't have their sustained effect unless you use them at higher and higher dosages over time, particularly that euphoric effect. But even the analgesic effect does develop tolerance, and as you get more and more tolerant and take more and more of the drug, the withdrawal syndrome that will occur when you stop the drug is more and more severe. What is involved with withdrawal? Opioid withdrawal is unlike alcohol withdrawal or some other types of withdrawal, which can have an actual mortality associated with them, but it is very unpleasant. It's like having a very bad case of the flu, lasts anywhere seven to 10 days, and then the acute syndrome is over, but there is a protracted period of withdrawal that can last as long as six months, mm -hmm. where people don't sleep well, where they feel uneasy, where they're certainly having a lot of craving to use the drug again. And it is that sustained period that often leads to relapse, even when someone has a successful medical withdrawal or detoxification, as it's often called. What does the progression look like once someone is addicted? Uh, what are the effects of long-term use? When people begin using opiates, it occurs in different contexts. The most common one in the recent epidemic has been people being treated for chronic pain of various sorts. These are usually benign pains, meaning that it's low back pain, it's headaches, it's peripheral neuropathies, it's uh, sometimes things that seem a little odd, like being treated for uh, gastrointestinal symptoms when mostly opiates would make them worse. Uh, but a lot of different pains, and they are treated for months or years with the opiates, and they then become quite tolerant and dependent on them. Now, for most people, they will eventually, um, if their doctor you know, wants to do that, and often should do that, discontinue the opiates, they do not go on to become abusers. But there's a percentage of them, of them do, and that percentage is quite variable, so that in some primary care clinics and um, that are uh, high-end ones, that the rates can be as low as only 3 or 4% of the patients that become opiate-dependent and abusers of the drug. In other settings, such as in uh, AIDS clinics, where people often have a variety of pains that are induced by the AIDS or the medications they're being treated, the rates of going on to develop opiate abuse and dependence are as high as 50%. So the setting varies a great deal. Then there are also adolescents who will begin by using opiates that they usually snort and that they'll just use them on weekends and they use them to get high. Uh, as they keep doing that, 
they will usually move on to more frequent use. And it, it, typically you have to be using the opiates daily in order to get to the point that you'll get tolerance and dependence. So those adolescents can in fact become like the chronic pain patient where they are in fact quite dependent on the opiate and when they discontinue its use will get fairly sick. That's the usual course that leads to people becoming what we usually think of as addicts. That is, they have to get the opiate or they don't feel normal. What's the difference between an opioid that's prescribed by a doctor, like OxyContin, and opioids that are obtained illegally, like heroin? They are fundamentally very similar drugs. Uh, heroin is a version of morphine that has been modified chemically so that it gets into the brain faster than morphine does. So that makes it more euphoria-producing, more addictive, you might say, in that way. Uh, what is on the street now increasingly are what's called pharmaceutical opioids, which may in fact be made by a reputable manufacturer and get diverted, or they can be made in factories that are located in various parts of the world, China and Mexico being two of the largest. And they are usually made by growing poppies and then taking those poppies and extracting the morphine from them. And then the morphine can be converted into a wide range of other drugs. If this is just an addiction problem, why are so many people dying in this current epidemic? Uh, we're not just hearing about increased use, but about um, deaths. One of the unfortunate characteristics of opiates is that uh, overdose from opiates will suppress your respiration. And suppressing your respiration, uh, if it's sustained, leads to death. And so just taking an overdose of an opiate can, in fact, kill you. And one of the ways that that happens is that when people buy opiates on the street, they don't know exactly what they're getting. Uh, they don't know the potency of it. They don't know how much they should take to just get a high as opposed to how much they should take um, if they want to avoid dying from it. And because of that, they're titrating it in a way that is fairly dangerous. Now, if that titration is occurring when you're smoking opiates, it's relatively easy to do. You Once you stop getting high, you just put the cigarette out. Uh, on the other hand, if you're injecting, uh, that injection has usually got a fixed amount of drug in it, and the method of doing it is to push the whole bolus in all at once. So that bolus may, in fact, contain a lethal amount of it. The other way that lethal amounts are increasingly occurring is that fentanyl is anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 times more potent, depending upon what type of fentanyl it is, than are the usual opiates that are taken. So when people are buying heroin, the heroin often has fentanyl in it now, or a fentanyl derivative. And so while they may think that they're taking the usual amount that they are tolerant to and that they would get a high from, they may in fact be taking a thousand times that dose, which would certainly be lethal to them. How potent is fentanyl that compared to OxyContin? Fentanyl is much more potent. Um, in some of the uh, formulations of it, 
it's merely 100 times more potent than oxycontin on a milligram per milligram basis. Uh, other formulations, such as carfentanil, can be 10,000 times more potent. Uh, carfentanil is, of course, the one that's now been um, made illegal for any use except for sedating elephants. And is uh, fentanyl a, a substance that you have to smoke or inject? You can certainly get fentanyl through a variety of means. Uh, you can smoke it, you can snort it, you can eat it, um, but unfortunately you also absorb it through your skin. And the absorption through your skin is one of the ways that it has been uh, nearly fatal with uh, the criminal justice people who have been cleaning up after opiate overdoses that have occurred in a person. And if they're not wearing gloves and they touch surfaces where the drug has been, even though they might not be able to see it, they will absorb it through their skin and it will lead to an overdose. So that those overdoses usually are you know, recognized right on the spot and they get the EMT people in there and uh, revive them, usually with uh, large dosages of naloxone or Narcan. But it is uh, a quite a potent drug and absorbed through every way you could imagine. Since fentanyl is so potent, uh, is it ever used uh, to mix in with any other kinds of street drugs? Certainly that is one of the problems, particularly in Texas, where uh, the heroin often is a black tar heroin and fentanyl is a white powder. So that black tar and white powder makes it fairly obvious that something's been mixed in with the heroin, which may not be a good thing. Uh, so the white china heroin, which it's often called, is what it's usually mixed with. However, in Texas, the fentanyl is been mixed increasingly with cocaine and with methamphetamine. Uh, with methamphetamine, some of the low-grade versions of methamphetamine, so that they're not actually 100% methamphetamine, but maybe as little as 20 to 30% methamphetamine, or 20 to 30% cocaine if it's a cocaine shipment. Putting in a very small amount of fentanyl into that gives the user the experience as if they're taking a drug that's very potent, uh, and they're not very good at telling opiates from stimulants. The problem with that is that when they then uh, are treated for an overdose, uh, either in the emergency rooms or by the EMT people, uh, they will uh, have cocaine or methamphetamine around, or the people around them may say that's what we were using. And uh, if the uh, medical professional or EMT is not very careful, um, and by very careful I mean looking at the pupils of the person who uh, just had the overdose, uh, they may mistreat them. That is, if you have a stimulant overdose, you have very broad pupils and you can hardly see the colored part of your eye. On the other hand, an overdose with opiates gives you pinpoint pupils. So in that sense, the distinction is very easy to make unless you don't look for it. Uh, and if you don't look for it and you treat the stimulant overdose, there's a very limited amount of time between when you take fentanyl and you overdose, and you can, in fact, revive them. Uh, that is, if they don't breathe for several minutes, uh, they'll be dead. And so even if you gave them naloxone at that point or Narcan, 
it would not reverse the fentanyl overdose because the patient's dead already. So there is a very high importance in making the correct diagnosis as soon as possible. And when it is a mixture of a stimulant with fentanyl, it can be quite confusing as to what exactly you're treating. And you have to get to the treatment of the opiate first and quickly. Who is to blame for our current addiction epidemic? Depends who you want to talk to and who you want to read about, but certainly the New York Times has uh, quoted more than once how the general public blames the doctors who have prescribed chronic opiates as much as they blame the people who take the chronic opiates and then go on to abuse them. Uh, There was certainly a period in the beginning of what would be uh, 2000 through 2006 or 7, where there were a number of manufacturers of opiates that were encouraging doctors to treat every patient who has pain with opiates and treat them with escalating dosages as need be. Uh, some of those manufacturers have, in fact, you know, faced federal lawsuits for that, and they're increasingly facing lawsuits yet again. Um, because they didn't discontinue some of those practices. And that led to fairly massive overprescribing of opiates for people for, who had um, these chronic low-grade pain syndromes that the data are now very clear, opiates make those syndromes worse mm. rather than better. The way they make them worse is that the withdrawal and dependence that occurs But they also induce a condition called hyperalgesia, where small pains get greatly magnified. And so it's not advantageous to use opiates chronically. And that was um, an advertising uh, ploy that worked in such a way to sell a lot more opiates, but did not benefit the patients who got them. What are some possible long-term solutions? Is it greater regulation of pharmaceuticals? Uh, Is it education? Is there a cure? Well, certainly regulation and greater education are uh, very helpful in this particular case. I think regulation of the marketing that the pharmaceutical companies can do, since an unfortunate part of continuing medical education is that it comes from the drug company representatives as much as it comes from people attending continuing medical education. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully that trend is changing. Uh, Then there is the other mandatory education that's increasingly being required for recertification either in specialty boards or to just get your medical license renewed. And that I think are good advantages so that the doctors who are prescribing these medications prescribe less of them. And that approach has had a very significant effect, certainly true in Texas, where the amount of opiates that are prescribed have gone down considerably. And the number of opiate uh, prescriptions that are given for more than three months have also declined quite a bit. Finally, within that same kind of regulatory framework is the dose of opiates that people are given, that there are recommendations from both the CDC and from HHS that have uh, specified a high-level dose, which is considerably less than 
what the pain medications were given out before as opiates. So those have been regulatory things that have been quite helpful. I think the, uh, the lawsuits against the companies um, have certainly motivated people to not want to take so many opiates and have a, uh, had an effect on the pharmaceutical companies' uh, practices in terms of how they advertise their wares and uh, push this forward with doctors or hospitals. One of the interesting things was that a fifth vital sign was invented um, by the hospital accrediting board, which was pain. And the way that that went is that patients are supposed to be relatively pain-free as a good mark for the hospital. And if you had patients who were complaining about pain, that was a mark against the hospital's further accreditation. Uh, that was not a good idea and led to a fair amount of overprescribing of opiates and led to the, um, I think, part of the current epidemic that we have. What are the other four vital signs? More usual things such as your blood pressure, your pulse, your respiration, your temperature, things that really are vital. If they stop functioning, you stop functioning. But with pain management, in general, you're not looking for stopping all the pain. What you're looking for is improvement in function. And 80% of what your baseline function is, is usually thought of as cure. So why don't you tell us a little about your own research into addiction? Yeah, I've certainly been involved with the treatment of opiate dependence for quite a long time. Um, initially, when I was a medical student was working with methadone when that was just first came out of obviously dates me a little bit um, and then later on did the initial studies with buprenorphine as a maintenance agent here in the United States when I was back at Yale and did the initial studies for naltrexone as a maintenance agent um, and then most recently have been interested in vaccines for treating opiate dependence in particular for treating fentanyl. Uh, the reason is that the fentanyl derivatives are not blocked by buprenorphine, naltrexone, or methadone, so that uh, it, even if you're in treatment with those drugs, you could still overdose with fentanyl. Uh, you could also get high from the fentanyl, and that can be a significant problem with the overdoses because the fentanyl is increasingly uh, mixed in with all the other drugs of abuse. How would a, a doctor and a patient use a vaccine, like a fentanyl blocker? The vaccines are uh, made in such a way that you have to give usually two or three boosters after the initial uh, vaccination, and that occurs over about a two-month period. And then you develop sufficient antibody levels to block the fentanyl. Those antibodies will remain relatively high for two to three months. Um, and then over the nor normal course of time, those antibody levels drop. Uh, unfortunately, just using fentanyl during that time will not increase the level of the antibody. So it's not like an infectious disease where every time you get infected, that stimulates the B cells to make more antibody you have to give the vaccine itself to stimulate that production because it is the coupling of the drug of abuse to the carrier protein that produces the antibodies. So one would need to get a, a booster vaccination about every probably three months and 
we did some of that work with the cocaine vaccine and found that it worked very effectively that a single booster would push the levels of antibody back up to what were in the therapeutic range. Um, so the expectation would be perhaps every three months you would need a vaccination for as long as the drug of abuse is an issue. Um, and in general, what we found, if people can stop using the drugs of abuse, whatever it happens to be, for about a two-year period and at the same time engage in some various types of behavioral therapies, uh, that they can then you know, get on with their life and not be burdened with abusing those drugs anymore. So that would be the ideal. Uh, we could, of course, though, conceivably vaccinate you every three months for the rest of your life. Do you see the vaccines being used preventatively with people who are not addicted, or would they only be for people who are already addicts? All of these vaccines, they're really designed for people who have the problem. Um, could you use it in a preventative way? Well, many vaccines are, in fact, used that way, but we don't have good enough predictors of who's going to, this is going to be a problem for. And to just use a small example, uh, there was a book that, uh, that I wrote with the National Academy of Sciences uh, about 15 years ago now about what would happen if the ethical issues of if we started vaccinating people. And with nicotine, if you vaccinated, say, all the teenagers against nicotine so they wouldn't smoke cigarettes, it's not clear that they would stop smoking cigarettes. Um, they may, in fact, want to smoke enough cigarettes to override your vaccine or your blocker. And what you'd effectively be doing is a teenager's capable of sticking, you know, 10 cigarettes in their mouth all at the same time and lighting them up, and they would get, um, you know, some effect from the nicotine at that point, but the amount of carcinogens they would be getting would be 10 times more than what is in one cigarette. So that would be an unintended consequence that's not at all positive. How does the current epidemic affect the future of healthcare? Well, I'm hoping that it leads to more educated doctors who will uh, use opiates more sensibly and understand something more about what the effects are, considering opiates are probably our second or third most commonly prescribed medication, and the amount of medical school education that's devoted to their use, abuse, and complications is vanishingly small, so that first we'll provide more education to students as they go through medical school, and anybody else who might prescribe opiates. And then the, beyond that, the continuing medical education will be uh, importantly used by all doctors and required, and so that they'll learn more and more about these medications, the opiate-related medications. Uh, the other is that there's still hopes for finding opiate-like compounds that would be analgesics, but would not produce the same level of tolerance and dependence. And that's a, uh, a hope that has been worked on for oh, about 150 years <laughs> at least. So one can't get overly optimistic. Are we seeing a bigger government response to this current epidemic because of who it affects? Well, certainly I think the political response to um, opiates is a problem. Uh, is very much driven by who has the problem. And so 
if there's a greater proportion of the voting population that is affected by opiates, either directly themselves or through their children um, or relatives, then you can expect a much bigger political response to it. When, uh, when opiates were a problem through the 80s, 90s, um, and were often more of a problem within inner cities and areas where um, people didn't vote, when areas where a number of the people sometimes were, in fact, um, illegal aliens, um, although ironically, illegal aliens are some of the uh, lowest rates of um, addiction problems. Um, that when it was confined there, then you didn't see a, a, a lot of motivation for politicians to do much. On the other hand, once the voting population, the middle-class America, the out in the suburbs, the um, uh, or, or even wealthy families begin to see this as a problem that's happening in their families and people close to them, then you get political action. Now, you might ask, well, how effective is that political action? And I think that that's been quite variable. Um, and the, the current political action um, seems to be kind of muted in comparison to what it's been with other administrations in terms of doing something. I mean, the HEAL initiative is a very big initiative for doing something about opiates um, and has very ambitious goals. For example, the, the latest HEAL initiative, which uh, I'm involved as one of their senior uh, scientists, is to reduce opiate overdoses by 40% in the next four years. Now, that's a tall order to do that, and we're doing it in four states around the country. So we'll be looking at Ohio, Kentucky, Massachusetts, and New York. But those are the places where you have some of the highest rates of fentanyl overdoses, mm -hmm. so that, that was part of the rationale. Whereas on the West Coast and in across the, the South, uh, there's less of a fentanyl overdose issue for opiates. This, as I said, in Texas, quite a fentanyl overdose issue with stimulants, which is just, that's the next thing that's coming. So I think that, uh, yeah, who gets affected and uh, who votes? That makes all the difference. Addiction has been called the American disease. Why is that? It's an interesting expression that I think was coined by David Musto quite a number of years ago when he wrote his book about the American disease. And it got that name because America has always been in the vanguard of uh, abusing drugs during at least the 19th and 20th century, and of course, going into the 21st, while there's much abuse of drugs before that, that were in many parts of the world, America seems to be the leader and has been the one that has also been the most forward going, I suppose you'd think, in terms of legislation, but also thinking about how you might develop new treatments for it because of the National Institute of Health, which had a sub-institute for alcohol and another one for drugs of abuse. Is this current issue part of a larger story? Well, the current epidemic that's happening with opioids can certainly be seen in that cyclic boom and bust where opiates have come back uh, three times. Uh, the initial time was during the Civil War when the hypodermic needle was uh, invented and people were then injecting opiates. There then was another one that came at the 
turn of the century, uh, the, that is the 19th to the 20th century, and then there was uh, the one that came through in the 1970s during the Vietnam War era, and now there's the one that we're facing now, which has been highlighted by fentanyl and some of these synthetic drugs. So with the opioids, there is a constant in and out, up and down. Are we doomed to keep repeating this cycle of abuse and addiction and potential solutions and then another cycle of, of the same? Well, uh, the creativity of the human mind and coming up with things that are potentially abusable um, and lead to a chemical high. And as some people have said, you know, better living through chemistry um, is uh, almost endless. I think that uh, the way it seems to go is it's not quite, it's a little bit longer than generational, so it's a little bit longer than 20 years, but over that period of time, if we've had an opiate epidemic 20, 25 years from now, when this, you know, 20 to 25 years after it ends, you will see then another one because people don't seem to remember or translate things or transmit them across the generations. And the stimulant epidemics have pretty much looked like that. About every 25 years, we have another stimulant epidemic. Yeah, because I see I'm 50, and I've seen over the years these cycles, and uh, it's, it is 20, 25 years. You're, that's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, it's, well, it's every generation. David Musto so. deserves credit for it. He <laughs> wrote the book. And that's the way he saw it. It's sad that we have no memory, but... Uh, <laughs> Or that we just don't transmit it down the generations. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. That um, the the news cycle, I guess, is just way too short for that to happen. And so, uh, I don't think that uh, my field will ever be put out of business, and uh, that there'll always be some other new development in what people can abuse, and perhaps uh, maybe even put them to therapeutic use, as you're probably aware of the hallucinogens such as MDMA and psilocybin are now being uh, tested in uh, FDA approval studies for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and the treatment of depression. Clever ideas doesn't mean that those clever ideas can't be turned into something abusable or that something abusable can't be turned back into something that becomes a clever idea again. Thank you for tuning into Body of Work by Baylor College of Medicine. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll want to subscribe and be on the lookout for our next episode, where we'll talk to Dr. Todd Rosengart about the aging physician population. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to listen. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, as well as at bcm.edu slash podcast. There, you can find the episode notes, including information about the experts featured on the show. A quick note about the medical advice and opinions stated in this podcast. Each individual's health profile is unique, so please see a healthcare professional about any questions you may have. Until next time, take care.